Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. And uh, if you're getting used to your Bibles, that's in the last fourth of the Bible. If you're using a hard copy like the black Bibles in the seat rack nearby you, it's on page 933. And we're going to look at verses 26 through 40 today of 1 Corinthians 14. Last week, Steve kicked off the first part of it. So as we look at this together today, uh, if you haven't been with us, you can see on the banners on the side that we're in this series as we make our way through the letter called 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. Where do we get that? At the end of chapter 12, Paul says, and now I will show you a most excellent way. Now I will show you a better way to be God's people in this world. Evidently, there were some things that were going on in Corinth, the church there. They were young. Uh, In some ways, they were doing things out of ignorance. Other times, they were doing things out of pride. So Paul writes this letter to say, hey, here's a better way to be a healthy church than the way you're going about it. And I want to help cheer you on because God really wants to help you be a healthy church. So as we think about this today, we're going to look at what he instructs them about orderly worship. Orderly worship. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what really the chapter 14 tells us. To honor God, Christian worship must be edifying and orderly. To honor God, Christian worship must be two things, edifying and orderly. Now, last week, Steve helped us understand the edifying side. What does it mean to edify? It means to encourage, to build up. It has that kind of spirit, uplifting. This week, we're going to talk about how about church services, gatherings of worship for Christian believers being orderly. What does that mean? And so as we think about that, uh, that's my assignment today. And um, as they, just to remind you, these people came out of a pagan background where they had a completely different experience of worshiping the gods in other ways. And now they've met the God and Father of their Lord Jesus Christ, and they're beginning to know him. And so to honor him, Paul says, here's some things you need to know. And if you're following along, what I want you to see as we look at verses 26 through 40 is that there are uh, some verses that bookend the section. So uh, everything must be done bookends this section. Everything must be done. That phrase, everything should be done, everything must be done, is how he starts and finishes the section we're going to look at today. In fact, I've listed the first and third gray box. I've bookended those in the notes, but I want you to read those with me just so you can see it uh, together. So let's read it. When you come together, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now would you drop down to the third gray box? Let's read that, the other bookend. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So edifying, built up, and also done in a fitting and orderly way. Those are the bookends. This is the big idea of this section. So uh, if you're following along, though, let's see, why is he writing this section? Here's the issue. Evidently, they're allowing disorder and chaos when they gather. Evidently, they're allowing disorder and chaos when they gather. Um, We've already seen some examples of this. Uh, Evidently, they were so excited about the spiritual gifts that sometimes they were exalting their gift over the others, and it was creating a lot of confusion. Uh, 
Other times uh, we saw that people were speaking in tongues in unintelligible ways where there was no interpretation, and so guests would come in and go, what in the world is going on? And there was this sense of disorder and chaos. But again, I want to make sure I say this a couple times today. When we read the New Testament, we have to always approach it humbly because we tend to think of our generation in history as the most sophisticated and the most superior. But if we do that, we'll miss being able to understand and appreciate what it was like for them in those days. So let me just read to you a little bit about the pagan background they were used to. Paul's teaching that God is not a God of disorder was quite revolutionary. Many pagan worshipers worked themselves up into an absolute uproar of noise and confusion. For them, spirituality was measured in decibel levels. The more noise, the louder they were, the greater the pleasure of the gods, and the more anointed the occasion. Since it was never the goal of the pagan cults to edify their believers, order and self-restraint were not valued. Paul intended to change all that. And so he says to them, look, you're used to the way you used to worship before you came to know God. Now I want to help you understand, remember, this is big. And how does that, how does that play out? Well, we're going to read in just a little bit how he does that, where he grounds that, and how he builds a basis for this. But before uh, we do that, I want to pray. And before I pray, I just want to ask the question I ask almost every Sunday, but always when I'm preparing a message. Why do we need this message? How in the world does this relate to our lives today? Well, first of all, we want to be a healthy church. And in this passage, he gives some principles that are timeless that we want to learn so that we, whenever we gather, we can be a, a group of people that are edifying and fitting in the way that we do it. And uh, again, one of the reasons why even in our bulletin, we list that, you know, if there's any kind of chatter or things like that, if you can just be respectful. Parents, if you have chatty children, if you can take them out, it's not because we don't like children. We love children. It's just that we want to make sure other people can benefit that the instruction going on. But also, we want to learn how to be a healthy church in the way that we approach this, our posture, our tone. But here's the other reason, and this is probably the biggest Um, we get to this section, we're going to come to one of the more controversial passages where it talks about women in ministry. And this is about as timely as anything going on in our culture right now. And so the question is, how do we practice, men and women, how do we practice ministry together in our church? And I want to address that today. And so we're going to come to that. And when we first read it, we're going to go like, like, what in the world does that mean? So uh, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be our teacher. Now, God, I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. And I also thank you for the privilege of being part of a church family like this one. Right now, I ask that I would be able to have the kind of posture you want me to have and that we would all have the kind of posture you want us to have as a church family so that we do this together in a way that's edifying and honoring to you. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so I mentioned to you the bookends. Now I want to talk to you about the middle gray box. And verse 33 for me, as I studied this passage, this is the key to the whole idea of orderly and edifying worship. And it's based in the character of the nature of God. In fact, if you're following along in the notes, here's the line. God's character should characterize the way we worship. 
God's character should characterize the way we worship. This is the timeless principle. And what is God's character? Well, he tells us in verse 33. So would you read that with me out loud? It's the middle gray box. Let's do it together. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Would you say that first line with me again in that second gray box? For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. I've been just repeating that over and over this week. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And so Paul says, look, you came from these pagan worshiping things where you had gods that just were okay with chaos. They were okay with that kind of disorder. God, God does not, that's, God's not working in that kind of thing where it's unintelligible and where people are going, what's going on? Is, are these people crazy? If you look at the last verse, verse 25 of the section Steve preached on last week, right before the one we're starting today, is, he said, look, if a guest walks in, You want to be so characterized by God making an influence in your life that people are able to go, surely God is among them. God's doing something with these ordinary people that are just like me. Surely God's among them. So he's saying it should be characterized by the character of God. And we've already been seeing how he designed this world with order and design. And when it's working right, man, it's amazing, isn't it? But when it's in disorder, oh my goodness, it's trouble city. So Paul says, make sure that you let God characterize the way you worship. Why? Next line. Because this builds up the church and instructs and encourages everyone. This builds up the church and instructs and encourages everyone. He's going to use a phrase that, again, I've noticed in verse 26 and verse 21. Here's the phrase. So that. So that. If you say, why? So that. So that the church may be built up and so that everyone has a chance. Everyone has a chance to be instructed and encouraged. When that's going on. And so again, we saw last week that he talked about speaking in tongues. Look, if there's someone that's not able to interpret that, then everyone's going, hey, I want to be encouraged, instructed. I want to be part of this, but I can't understand what you're saying. It edifies you, but it doesn't edify the rest of us. So come on. And there's that whole thing he's already been talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. So um, when we think about this whole idea, um, one of the things that, that struck me is that he starts also in this phrase by saying, each of you, in some of your translations, everyone, in verse 27, and uh, verse 26. And so, if you're following along, Paul says, each of you may participate. Paul says, each of you may participate. Now, we've already seen this. If you were here when we studied chapter 11, we talked about the fact that he did something radical there by saying both men and women can pray and prophesy in the worship gatherings. And we just have no idea how absolutely new this was. In Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture, women were either uh, put to the side, segregated, or they were not allowed to speak or participate. And it's going to look, and when we read this passage, like Paul's reinforcing that when we get to it. But I want to show that he's actually doing something more. Now, here's the reason why this is challenging. God's character is a God, he's a God of order, but he also is a God that brings freedom. 
In the second letter to Corinthians, he's going to say, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When he's working, there's not just order, but there's freedom. Now think about this with me. If you have freedom without order, you have chaos, you have anarchy. If you have order without freedom, you have something so stiff, so inflexible, it's death dealing. What he's saying is you want to have services that have freedom, but have order. Because when both are going on, freedom actually works best inside of order. Let me just give you a quick illustration. I think I've shared this before. James Dobson used to say this. As an educator, years ago in the 60s and 70s, when there was this more call for more freedom, more individual freedom, some of the educators began to take away at the school playgrounds uh, the fences that had uh, bordered the uh, playgrounds because they thought, "We we don't want our kids to feel limited. What they noticed is, is that when they did that, the children began to congregate towards the center of the playground. They did not feel the same security. They did not feel that life was ordered. It was very hard, and so they tended to gather together. When they put the fences back after that, kids played and kicked soccer balls all the way out to the edge because they now knew what the order was, and they could live freely within that order. And Paul is saying, this is a great way to understand the character of God. He wants you to have freedom, yes. And that freedom includes even women now being invited side by side to participate with men in worship services. But when you use that freedom, be careful that you also don't forget order and what's fitting and appropriate. So he's going to talk about that. Now, notice this, that along with this, here's how he's going to handle this passage. And I am about to read it, believe it or not. Paul addresses three ways they need to practice orderly worship. So Paul says he establishes both the bookends and also the big idea. But then he says, now, let me just be really clear when you gather so that you know the instruction God has for you. When you guys gather, you have some unique things you do as a gathering, and I want to speak to each one of those. When you guys speak in tongues, there's a way to do it. When you guys prophesy, there's a way to do it. And now that you have women in your gatherings, there's a way that women should participate as well. And I want to address all three of those. So he's going to do that. Now, again, let's read these verses, as I promised we would, and uh, then we'll unpack them, okay? So I'll start at the beginning. Verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? 
If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, let me just make my way through this, and I'm only going to say a few things about tongues and prophecy because Steve did a great job on this last week. And if you want to hear, again, how we practice that and understand these things, you can listen to that message. But here's what I'll summarize in this way. Here's what he says. Tongues should be practiced with interpretation only, prophesying with evaluation, if you're following along the notes. Tongues with interpretation only, prophecy, prophesying with evaluation. So the idea here is he's already said, look, if it's going to benefit everyone, then even if you have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and you have a message you believe God's given you as you've been praying and you want to share that, it has to have an interpretation with it. Otherwise, no one's going to understand. It's just going to sound like a lot of words. So he said last week, I would rather have speak in five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. I would rather help people with five words they can understand than 10,000 they can't. And so, interpretation only. But then he says with prophesying, again, Steve taught us last week that this is, someone says, I, I, I sense God is saying something to me that may be helpful or for you. And you say it very humbly, but again, it has to be evaluated. It has to be tested. This is because some people are going around saying, God said that I'm supposed to say to you. And people go, um, I don't think God was talking to you. I think you ate some bad pizza. And you, we've seen this before, and that's why there's always got to be this carefulness. But again, what does the body of Christ do? You guys hopefully are doing this anytime we preach or that times that people share in the worship team, whatever, is, 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 that, is that consistent with, with God saying, it, let everything be tested. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not despise prophesying, but make sure you test whatever you see, so that you're not just, you know, swallowing it, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Michael Green has given several questions that are always wise to think about when we're, inter when we're evaluating prophecy. Does it glorify God? Is it in accord with scripture? Does it build up the church? Is it spoken in love? Does the speaker submit to judgment, the judgment by others? Is the speaker in control of himself? Does the speaker go on too long? That's a good one for me to listen to. Is the speaker demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in his life? And so these are just some of the questions that need to be considered. And part of what's going on there is that he says, look, the spirits of the prophets are in control of the prophets. What's he mean? That means that if some person stands up and says, I have something to share with you, and I'm going to take as long as I want to tell you, no matter what other people have to say or whatever, then at that point he's saying, that's not how God works. God works in such a way that you can stop when you need to. And so if someone decides to go on and on and on and on and everybody else is going, I think we got the message about three rows back. I mean, you just have to be able to say, come on. So he's saying there is self-control that is possible even when the spirit of God is speaking through and to someone. So those are the big ideas, okay? Now, this next part that we get to is this whole idea that women should be silent. They're not allowed to speak. They, if they want to inquire, they should you know, ask their husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, here's, here's what I want to just share with you. As we look at these words, 
My dad taught me something years ago that you've probably been taught too, but if you haven't, this is great counsel. Whenever you read anything in Scripture that seems to be absolutely dogmatic, always ask yourself, is there anything else in Scripture that would hold it in tension, that would bring it into greater balance that I need to also consider when I read this? So I said to you back when we studied 1 Corinthians 11, that whatever we read in 1 Corinthians 14 has to be tempered by what we read in 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul clearly says that women can speak in worship services. They can pray and they can prophesy. By the way, in case you wonder if that actually happened, Acts 21, 8 and 9, I won't take time to show you, says that Philip had four unmarried daughters that prophesied. So in the church, that kind of thing was going on. So it must not mean not allowed to speak, period, but a certain kind of speaking that we at least have to take into account. Some might say on the other side, well, what about 1 Timothy 2 that also says women are not permitted to speak. They are not permitted to have authority over, you know, a man. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But the key command in that passage is women should learn. And that is a revolutionary idea as well. So we'll come back to that. But here's what I want you to see. As I had a chance to study this, and again, because you guys give me an honored time to study the word of God before we stand up here to preach. This is probably a passage, I've never studied a passage more than I've studied this one. I'm quite sure I've at least put 40 or 50 hours into this over the last few weeks. I've read hundreds of pages on this to try and get an idea because across the body of Christ, there are all different kinds of opinions on what this means. But let me just share with you some of the things that have stood out to me, and I hope this is helpful. So the first thing, if you're following along, is that Paul gives a be silent command to all three groups. Paul gives a be silent command in all three groups. Interestingly, in the, the New International Version, which I'm reading from right now and which we have in our seat uh, backs and stuff like that, it, the, the New International Version does not choose to translate it that way, only with the passage with the women. So let me try and give you a slide that may show this. So if we look up here on the screen, we've got the NIV first, okay? So here's how it reads what I just read. Those who speak in tongues should keep quiet, okay? The prophets should stop. That means stop talking so that someone else, it's their turn, right? The women should remain silent. Did you know Paul uses the exact same verb those three times? So it could be translated like this. <clears throat> those who speak in tongues, be silent. The prophets, be silent. The women, be silent. It's clearly not saying, if you speak in tongues, be silent all the time, never ever talk. If it's prophecy, he's not saying never, ever, ever, ever talk. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be silent when it's appropriate. Be silent in order that there might be order. So there was evidently a certain kind of speaking that was not appropriate that was going on here. They were using their freedom to either talk over each other, interrupt, disrupt, and so there's a lot going on. And what he's saying is, women, now that you're part of these worship gatherings, you too should be silent, just like I talk to tongue speakers and just like I talk to people prophesying. In fact, some of you may be tongue speakers and prophesying people too, but I'm making sure you understand that now with all this going on, in this new freedom that's starting to collide with our culture, both with pagan 
worshiping and also with God's way of worshiping that you're careful. This was really helpful to me. In verse 28, 30, 34, he uses the same verb. Now, next thing, what does be silent mean? Because when we hear be silent in our culture, do you know what we hear? Shut up. That's what we hear. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's talking about a posture. And so if you're following along, to be silent means to take turns, listen, learn, be self-controlled. In other words, in the worship services, take turns, one at a time. Listen, learn, and be self-controlled. Don't say, I couldn't help it. God just wanted me to do this. I know it's throwing everything out of whack, but it's about me. No, Paul says, don't do that. The Spirit of God can help you control yourself. Don't blame him, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And so when we think about this, this is really helpful for me. Um, I, I read this uh, this week. It would be helpful to understand the context and use of the word silent. In the Greek culture, women were discouraged from saying anything in public. And they certainly were not allowed to confront or question men publicly. Some of you, by the way, you can still see on the news in the Middle East the way that even extremist Muslim groups and others practice as far as women not being able to even publicly do some of these things. Try and put yourself back in this context. Apparently, some of the women who had become Christians thought that their Christian freedom gave them the right to question the men in public worship. And this was causing division in the church. In addition, women of that day did not receive formal religious education as did the men. So the speaking in which Paul referred to was the inappropriate asking of questions that would disrupt the worship service or take it on a tangent. Therefore, the women should be silent during the church meetings, not because they were never to speak, but because they were not to speak out with questions that would be ineffective in edifying the entire church. Interestingly, by the way, the word speak, Paul's actually said, speak, speak, uh, in, on purpose in these passages, like when it comes to you know, uh, tongues with uh, interpretation and also prophecy. So again, he's not forbidding speaking. He's forbidding a certain kind of speaking. So when we understand that, that at least puts it more back in context. And then uh, let me just talk to you about when we hear the word silent. In the United States, one author says, to learn in silence has derogatory connotations since it suggests the type of rebuke an adult might address regrettably to a child. Shut up and listen to what the teacher says. However, what would learning in silence signify to a devout Jew such as Paul? Silence, first of all, was a positive attribute for adults, male as well as female. Second, silence was a positive attribute for rabbinic students. Paul's words were declaring to his Jewish friends that at this time, women were to be learning in the same manner as rabbinic students. So what Paul is doing here is he's actually encouraging learning. This had not happened before. So as I talk about this with you, here's another piece of background for you to understand. Women were not allowed to give a testimony in the court of law in the first century among Jewish culture, Roman culture, and even Greek culture. They were beginning in the first century in Greek uh, worship, pagan worship, to women were now beginning to take uh, a more prominent place in those groups. And so the culture was clashing 
But what was going on is they were not allowed to give a testimony in the court of law. They were not considered reliable witnesses. They were not allowed to own property. And they definitely were not allowed to have equal access to education. That was for boys. That was for men. So Jesus comes on the scene. And notice, this is some of what he stepped into himself when he stepped onto our planet. This is what the rabbis were teaching. It is better to burn the Torah, the Old Testament, than to teach it to women. That's really uplifting. Blessed be many Jewish, uh, the, the many Jewish men prayed this prayer every morning. Blessed be God who has not made me a heathen, a slave, or a woman. This is the atmosphere. Now, with that, Jesus steps into that kind of culture and timing. And what I want you to see is that along with that idea of be silent that we have kind of this certain attitude about, there's something else he says. He says women should be in submission. Now, if you're following along, order only happens when everyone has a submissive attitude. Order only happens when everyone has a submissive attitude. I want to explain this. So when he says women should be in submission... He's already said that men should be in submission too. When? Back there, the prophesying, he said, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Subject to is the same verb as submission. In other words, there should be a submissive spirit whenever I'm in part of the body of Christ, whether I'm a man or a woman. Now, this is the one example, by the way, when he says women should be in submission. It's the one of 38 times that word shows up in the New Testament. It's the only time that the object of what they should be submitted to is not clearly named. So people have said, well, that means they should be in submission to their husbands. The only problem with that is that hasn't been mentioned yet. So some people say, well, it'll be mentioned later. Some say, does it mean to be in submission to the rest of the church? Does it mean to be in submission to God? Does it mean to submit myself? Really, you can build a case for all those, but what I want you to see is that most Jewish people and Roman people understood silence and submission to be the most beautiful posture to learn. And it was actually considered a way of learning. And so Paul is actually saying, Christ is calling all of us to follow his example of silence and submission, both men and women, and he has come to revolutionize this world, and no longer is it just for men. And But we don't hear that. So some of us say, well, what about when it says women, if they want to inquire, should ask their husbands at home? Let me just talk to you about that for a second. Did you notice how he says this? If a woman wants to inquire. Well, in the past, the answer would have been, you can't learn. It's not for you. Paul says, no, if a woman wants to inquire, we encourage that now because of Jesus. And she should ask her husband at home. This this trips the trigger for several things. You know what this means? Those of us that are husbands, we better be learning too. And we better have a heart that wants our wives to learn right alongside with us because Jesus has changed everything. What happens too often is husbands take a passive stance with their wives and their wives are eager to learn but their husbands go well I don't really care or I'm not that interested and that's a challenge and for single women that want to learn what about them he's saying that the day is open now in silence and submission for both men and women to learn and so this is a beautiful beautiful picture but 
as we're going to see, there are some things in the New Testament that hold this intention, and I certainly want to talk about that. So when you think about this posture of silence and submission, where both men and women are practicing that, have you, have you seen it? I remember a time that my dad told me about when he was a pastor in Danville, Illinois. I was a teenager then, but we had moved there, and the first couple years, I remember my dad was really down. He wondered if he had made a mistake and by coming to Danville and leaving Iowa. And so those first couple years were kind of rugged. He went through depression. But I remember that one day there was a woman that called his office, and this wasn't her style. She was a very humble, hospitable lady, uh, just really down to earth. And she called and said, could I have an appointment with you? And he goes, that's not like her to ask for an appointment. This must be serious. And so when she got to the office, she was very nervous. And she said, Pastor Gary, I don't know how um, I'm supposed to say this, but I just want to make sure I say it in the right way. I sense that God wants me to tell you that you don't love us. And my dad, as he's listening, he said, at that very moment, I realized she was right. And not only was her posture humble, but my dad's posture was humble. And that ended up being the turning point in that church. He realized that he was still loving the church he had left and never really given himself to loving the church he was now part of. And the next six and a half, seven years being part of that church was a turnaround, but it was learning to listen and learn together. It was a beautiful thing. That has been such a great example for me. So how do we practice this? I want to bring this home. Practicing orderly worship. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus set this tone. Maybe you've never seen this before in Luke 10, but in Luke 10, uh, if you've never read, we studied this passage before. This is a beautiful example. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. I want to just read that again. This is what people did up to this time, what men did at the feet of a rabbi. He uses the same phrase. She sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Most, New Test- most first century people reading that would have gone, well, that's new. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Remember what women are supposed to do. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you were worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. She wants to inquire. She wants to learn. And I'm not taking that away because I've come to restore what got lost in the fall. And then Paul was not a chauvinist, friends. He actually had been taken from this person like a rabbi himself. And now Jesus had changed his mind so much so that even in Romans 16, look at how he talks about his fellow uh, women in the church. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon, a servant in the church in Sancria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm so thankful for them, and so are all the Gentile churches. And in those first 12 verses of Romans 16, he names six or seven women along with men because you see, it's a new day with Jesus in the sense that we are equally able to learn. 
The question is, what about our practice? So let me ask a couple questions as we close. Am I fully engaging? This is one for each of us. Am I fully engaging with a thoughtful and submissive attitude? Am I fully engaging with a thoughtful and submissive attitude? Now, this, this assumes that you and I are even attending or gathering. Nowadays, it's become way more popular to not even gather. Say, I don't need the church. But we've been learning all along. The goal always, Jesus died for a church. He dreamed of a church, a healthy church. And so, but when we gather, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but when we gather, am I engaging? Am I leaning in? Am I giving myself? Am I using my mind and my heart and even my body to give myself to God, whether it be follow along? Some of you, helps you to take notes, but you're engaging. Can I just stop and say, I love this about you. I've mentioned before that when my kids came home from college, they would say, Dad, do you realize that this church is unusual in some ways compared to other churches because the majority of people seem to want to be here? It is so uplifting and edifying to be part of a church and to teach into a church where you come with a desire to engage. And if you're not there yet, if you come and you're not here because you want to and you're not engaging, I hope the way I'm talking about it right now is an invitation to you to move in that direction because this is what it looks like to be a healthy church. But I have to ask myself every time we gather if that's my posture. Do I come with that kind of submitted, you know, teachable heart? The second thing, though, is are we representing God's image, honor, and character are we representing God's image, honor, and character? Do you remember Genesis 1, 26 through 28? If you look at these words, it reminds us that when God in creation, what he had in mind, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it together alongside each other, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So in our worship gatherings, how do we practice this? Here's where we are as we've studied both the Old and New Testament. It's our understanding that men and women are equal in status, that men and women are equally graced by God and can be spiritually gifted equally. But we also see that there is some indication that there may be a difference in roles, both in marriage and also in the practice of leadership in the church. And we know that across the board, there are all different kinds of ideas on this. I um, would say that I say to Trish all the time that Cherry Hills is held together by chicken wire and the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is, is that we have people from extreme fundamentalist backgrounds in our church family, and we have people from extreme charismatic backgrounds and everything in between. So when we gather together, you can imagine that people have come with multiple experiences where maybe their background, women were leaders, women were teachers, women were pastors. Sometimes people came from backgrounds where no, 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 and everything in between. But what we understand to be in our church family, because we tend to be a more conservative church, and because we don't want to be divided on this, is that we believe that women should have all kinds of opportunities, but as far as the office of elder, we believe that that has a clear indication that that should be led by men. Are there churches that have women elders? Yes. 
Do I look down on them? No, it's one of these things. This is not a salvation issue. This is not a major. This is a minor. And there may be differences of opinion on that. But I would say our church believes most, the best way for us to practice orderly is to have men, elders. And by the way, we've had conversations as a church family about this. And even the women in our church at that time, also many of them felt that way. But we have women that lead in almost every other way in our church. You'll see women on our stage every week. You'll see women on our finance teams, benevolence teams, uh, building and grounds teams. You'll see women teaching in our church in different ways and different offering different curriculum and things like that. But we want to make sure that we are not ever forcing that on someone's conscience. And so we will probably never have a woman senior pastor. Some churches do. I happen to go to three different seminaries. I didn't choose these seminaries because of this. They were closest to my proximity. But in two of those three, women were ordained as pastors. And therefore, I had to take preaching classes with women. And I'll just say to you that some of the women in my classes were better preachers than me. And I know that God can give those gifts. But as far as our church family, what you're going to see Sunday after Sunday is, again, men teaching this, but also always wanting to make sure that we are listening and respecting and giving women opportunities to share in our services too. So what we want to do is we want to celebrate side by side and honor each other, edify one another. And as we close this service, we pray, we pray that we will appreciate what Jesus came to open up what he came to restore, that now we would be honoring of each other, that we would practice with order and intentionality. And I am so thankful that this church has a heart to be edifying and orderly. Let's praise him together side by side. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.